Thanks for tuning in for Love, Live, Lead, the broadcast ministry of Christ Community Church of Imperial Valley. We would love to help you plan your visit, so we encourage you to visit our website at www.cccciv.org for service times and our events calendar. Or get the app. You'll find the Christ Community Church IV mobile app in your app store for Apple or Android devices. Paul says in the end days, there's going to be a departing of people that are going to follow after lies that won't follow after truth. Look at Peter. Peter says this, 2 Peter chapter 3. He says, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of the coming? Jesus isn't going to return. Right, just live your life the way you live your life. Things have been going on the same way from the beginning of time. And this is just another cycle in time. In the last days, there will be a departure from truth. Jesus himself said in Luke chapter 18, he says, when I come to the earth, when I return for a second time, will I even find any faith left on the earth? The Bible clearly teaches that there will be a departure from truth in the end days. But... The second view of this word, which I agree with and which Pastor Walter agrees with, wouldn't say that this is a departure from truth in this particular text. Does the Bible say there will be a departing of truth? Yes. But I don't believe that that is what this word is referring to in this text. Okay, let's read it again. Look at there, verse 3. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. The rebellion, the word apostasia in the Greek, its literal translation is departure. We have come to interpret that as a departure from the truth, but it just means a departure. Like when we're going to depart from church today and we're going to go have lunch or we're going to go run our errands and do our things. It's a physical departure from one place to another. And so again, this text, if it's read that way, would say that the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, will not be revealed until the departure, the rapture of the church takes place first. Are you following me? Okay, this is important for us to understand because this word apostasia as a noun is used twice in the New Testament. Both times it's used as a departure from the faith. But as a verb, the word is aphiestemi in the Greek, that word is used 15 times in the New Testament. And 12 of those times it refers to a physical departure from one place to another. Okay, so the vast majority of the times that this word in the Greek is used in the scripture, it's referring to a physical departure, not a spiritual departure or a wandering away from the truth. Does that make sense to you? So it's important that we understand what Paul is saying here. He's saying, listen, those who are saying that you're in the period of wrath, that the Antichrist has come, that these things are taking place all around you, that you're in the middle of the tribulation, that you're experiencing the wrath of God, they don't understand that what God has taught and what I've taught you is that the departure must take place before those things happen. Why? Because the scripture says in 1 Thessalonians that you are not appointed to wrath as the church. Can I get an amen for that? Are you excited that you're not appointed to wrath, that God has not ordained you for wrath? Not only that, the scripture says this, that not only contrary to the fact that you're not ordained for wrath or that you're not purposed for wrath, you're absolutely purposed for salvation. Your purpose is that God would save you through that wrath, from that wrath. Okay, so now think with me just for a moment because there's a truth that we need to understand here when it comes to the study of the scriptures. And that is this, and if you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. 
you have to allow context to determine meaning. Okay, so if this word can be used for two different directions, one for wandering away from truth, but one for a physical departure, you have to allow the context of the text that you're studying, the context has to determine the way you should understand that word. And to illustrate that, this is how I'm going to do it. If I take this and I say, I'm going to make a phone call on my apple, right? You're going to say, that's ridiculous. You can't make a phone call on that apple, right? If I'm holding this, I say, I'm going to make a phone call on my apple. It makes sense. Context determines meaning of what I'm saying, what I mean when I use the word apple. Does that make sense? Now, if I take this and I say, look, this is the most delicious apple I've ever tried in my life, right? It's confusing. It doesn't make any sense because that's not the proper context for the word apple. If I were talking about a vacation that I'm going on and I'm saying that I'm going to go to the big apple, you're not going to think that I'm going to go to a very large apple like this, right? That's not the context, right? If I'm talking about how much I love my wife and I say that my wife is the apple of my eye, I'm not comparing her to a cell phone, right? Context determines meaning. If someone comes up to you and punches you in the throat and you say, oh, my Adam's apple, you men in the room, my Adam's apple, you understand what that's talking about, right? That's five different ways that you can use the word apple. They're all correct, but the context in which you use the word determines the meaning of the word. Yes? In the same way, right here in this text, in 2 Thessalonians, we have to allow the context to determine the meaning of that word rebellion in the English as we read it here. But really in the Greek it would mean a departure. The context has to determine the meaning. Now this is what I find interesting. Is that for most of the translations of the Bible, all the way up until the, the year 1611, those translations of the Bible into other languages always translated that word where we see rebellion. They always translated that word as departure. Let me pull this up on the screen so you can see this. The Latin Vulgate, which is the Latin translation of the Bible, the Bible translated into Latin. Latin was the common vernacular of the day. It's translated departure. In 1384, the Wycliffe Bible translated departure. 1526, Tyndale Bible, it's departure. 1526, Coverdale Bible, departure. 1576, Breacher's Bible, departure. 1583, Beza Bible, departure. 1608, Geneva Bible, Departure. It wasn't until 1611 with the King James Version that that word was translated improperly as apostasy or a falling away or a rebellion. Now, here's another truth. If you're taking notes, I want you to write this down because this is also very important. As you study the word for yourself, as you dive into the playbook and you try to discover the playbook on your own, right, you have to understand the difference between translation and interpretation. All right, the difference between translation and interpretation. Translation is saying what something says, okay? It's, it's, it's just translating it from one language to another. Interpretation is trying to interpret the meaning of what is being said. And so these translators for the 1611 King James Version and all of the versions that we have since then that are heavily influenced by those translators, right? They read into the text, meaning rather than drawing out of the text what it says. Very important that you distinguish the two of those. The difference between translation. Again, the Bible is written in Hebrew and in Greek, and there's a little bit of Aramaic in there, right? And so you, you have that. You, you want to make sure that you're reading a translation that is as true to the original meaning as possible, and that you're not reading someone else's interpretation of those words. Okay? You follow? 
Okay, so I think we're good. You understand, this word rebellion should really be translated departure, which again is another reference to the rapture of the church. So back here, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Let no one deceive you, verse 3, in any way, for that day will not come. That day will not come unless the rebellion, the rapture, takes place first. Then the man of lawlessness will be revealed. Who do you think this man of lawlessness is a reference to? Who do you think? The Antichrist. He's known by many names throughout the scriptures. I read somewhere that it was as many as 30 different names that make reference to this man in the scriptures. But the one that is stuck the most is Antichrist. And we read about the Antichrist, or the first time it's used, is by John in 1 John chapter 2. It says this, Children, it is the last hour as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, and now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. Okay, He says, we're close to the end. We know that it's close to the end because Antichrist is on his way. And, and we can already see hints and droppings of hints that the Antichrist is, is already trying to start to influence the world today. This is what John said. So if you're taking notes... Right Before this happens, the conditions before the day of the Lord, the first thing is there has to be a departure. Secondly, the, law, or the, the son of destruction will arrive, the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist. Now, that name Antichrist, it doesn't just mean someone who is in opposition to Christ, although that is true. It also means something that takes the place of Christ or in, in substitution of Christ. And here's what worries me about the church today is some of us believe that we're in a good place spiritually because we're not involved in the same sins that we used to be involved in, right? It, it doesn't look overtly sinful. We're not involved in addiction. Maybe we're not involved in the lust of the flesh like we used to be. We've changed somewhat, but we've allowed subtly little things to creep into our lives that maybe aren't in opposition to Christ, but have taken the place of Christ or are the substitute for Christ on the throne of our hearts, you realize that so for some of you, your career can be anti-Christ. That you're worshiping at the altar of your career in place of worshiping Christ. That is anti-Christ, in substitute of Christ. For some of you, maybe it's your education. For some of you, you're chasing dollars. For some of you, it's a relationship. For some of you, it's your children's sports activities and all of the extracurricular activities that they're involved in. Why? Because it's taking the place, the throne of Christ in your life. It is anti-Christ, and we feel like it's acceptable, right, or that it's permissible because it's not as bad as we used to be. You realize if you're worshiping anything other than Christ, that that is anti-Christ and that is not pleasing to God, it's called idolatry. Over and over and over again in the Old Testament, the Jewish people were judged for their idolatry. They were taken captive. They were judged. They were punished. They experienced hardship. Why? Because they allowed something else to take the throne of their heart rather than God. My challenge to you this morning is no matter where you came from or no matter how terrible a person, sinner you used to be, I want you to get alone with the Lord and I want you to ask God and say, God, are there any antichrists in my life? Is there anything that I've allowed into my life that has taken my affection away from you? That has distracted me from worshiping you and you alone? Because you and you alone deserve my worship, deserve that attitude of my heart. Are you with me? So this man of lawlessness will be revealed. You see that word revealed there? Now I, I want to give you a glimpse inside the playbook just for a moment. Because the scripture says that when the man of lawlessness ascends, when he's really truly revealed, what's going to be happening on the world stage is there's going to be conflict. 
There's going to be confusion. There's going to be chaos. And he will arise as the one with all of the solutions. And the scripture seems to insinuate that he's going to come out of a revived Roman empire. Those regions of the world that used to be under the Roman control. Those regions in Europe, both western and some of eastern Europe. It says in Daniel chapter 7, let me read this to you. I'll turn there. Uh, If you want, you can turn there with me. Daniel chapter 7, speaking of this ascension or this revealing of Antichrist, it says, After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broken pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was from all of the other beasts that were before it. It was different from them all, and it had ten horns. And as I considered the horns, behold, there came up one from among another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were the eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great or blasphemous things. So this Antichrist will arise. The nations of Europe will give their power over to this little horn that will arise with the eyes of a man who speaks blasphemous words. They're going to surrender power to him because he's going to have all of the solutions. He's going to be able to fix what is wrong with the world and all of the world's conflicts. Look at what it says in Daniel chapter 9 about this revealing of this man. It says this in verse 26, after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off. This is speaking of Jesus and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come, this is the antichrist, the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary and its end shall come with the flood and to the end there will be a war. Desolations are decreed. Verse 27, he, the antichrist shall make a strong covenant, a covenant of peace with many for one week or seven years and for half of the week he shall put an end to the sacrifice and offering and on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. This is the Antichrist ascension. This is his revealing. Now, if you want to know the playbook, you read Revelation and you'll read in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. Right In Revelation chapter 2 and 3, you have the history of the church dispensationally. These time periods of the church. And how it comes to the end with the church of Laodicea, the lukewarm church. The church that's neither hot nor cold. That is just kind of there. It's not really doing its job properly. But in chapter 4... The church is raptured into the presence of the Lord. And then you have this account in 4 and 5 of worship in heaven. And adoration of Jesus at the throne of the Lamb and all of the church worshiping. But in chapter 6, listen to this. Chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. It says, Now I watched when the Lamb opened up one of the seven seals. And I heard one of the four living creatures say with a loud voice like thunder, Come! And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. So something shifts between what is happening in Revelation chapter 2 through 5. Now in Revelation chapter 6, the the end begins, that last seven-year period when the Antichrist will be revealed. And so most commentators will say that this rider that is on the back of this white horse is the Antichrist. And he comes, and in his hands he has a bow but no arrows. Did you see that? He'll come with a bow and no arrows. When we read about the bow that is formed by God in Genesis, do you remember what the purpose of that bow was? It was to say that I'm no longer going to judge. It was a declaration of peace. And so Antichrist comes onto the scene with a declaration of peace. He seems to be able to make the world comfortable and safe again. 
Many people believe that this will happen specifically in the Middle East. And so I have a a couple of pictures I want to show you here. He's going to make this covenant with the Jewish people for a year, right? Look at this, this idea of the Jewish people being able to rebuild their temple. They're desperate to rebuild their temple because they can't worship the way they're called to worship by their scriptures. They can't bring sacrifices to the temple. They can't lay them before the Lord. You and I, we have Jesus as our sacrificial lamb. We have Jesus. We have no need for further sacrifices. But the Jews still need to bring sacrifice to the temple for their sins to be atoned for and covered. So they're desperate for their temple to be rebuilt. Look at this picture of the Temple Institute. They'll bring this up. The the people in, in Israel, the Temple Institute has already begun to rebuild what is needed for the worship within the third temple. That's the menorah. Can you see how big that is? You see the people in the background there? This menorah, solid gold, it's humongous, it's huge. There's a model of what the third temple would look like. That in the lower uh, corner is the woman who is a part of sewing with that loom. She has a loom there and she's preparing the ephods for the priests to be able to minister within the temple. Right, these people are hungry for their temple. You, you saw this about the red heifers, right? Just a few, maybe about a month ago or a month and a half ago that the Jewish people had contracted with ranchers in Texas to breed the red heifers that are needed to be able to cleanse the temple when it's rebuilt. The temple's not there yet, but they are ready for the temple. How about this high-speed rail system? They are building this high-speed rail system that will connect the airport in Tel Aviv, Ben-Gurion Airport, and will take people at high speeds to the Temple Mount so they can bring their sacrifices to God. The people of Israel are preparing themselves right now to worship in a new temple. What most people believe is that the Antichrist, when he is revealed, when he comes upon the scene, he comes bearing peace. He signs a covenant for seven years with the Jewish people. He will be able to convince them to sign this covenant because he will figure out how to build or rebuild their temple so they can worship. Are you with me? I'm telling you this because I want you to be, Lord willing, we'll be gone. We should be gone before this happens. You shouldn't be left when this peace covenant is signed, right? Or you're gonna, This is going to happen right before you leave. But you should see that the, all of these are signs that it's getting closer. Your heart should be prepared. Your heart should be ready. Now, this is what's amazing to me. is in the scripture, and if you're taking notes, write this down. In Ezekiel chapter 40 through 44, Ezekiel is given a vision of what the third temple will look like. It's actually described in Revelation chapter 11. Let me read this to you. This will be on your screen for you. It says, Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months, okay, for for three and a half years. Now, look at this overview of the temple grounds or the temple mount there in Jerusalem. This is what it looks like today. If you can pull that picture up. This is what I want to describe to you. There on the temple mount, you see the gold roof there, right? That's a Muslim holy site. Obviously, the temple cannot be built there. It would cause World War III instantaneously if we tried to tear down their temple, right? But you see what's circled there in the corner? That's what's known as the dome of the spirits or the dome of the tablets. Let me show you an up-close picture of what this looks like. It's just this little gazebo place. And they believe that this was the location of the tablets. That's why it's called the dome of the tablets. It was the location in the original temple where the tablets, Moses' tablets, the Ten Commandments were kept, where the mercy seat of God was kept, where the Holy of Holies was at, where the Spirit of God descended on the Day of Atonement to meet with the Jewish people. There's a, a man by the name of Asher Kaufman who studied the Temple Mount grounds and believes that this is the location 
of the Holy of Holies. You read in Ezekiel about the measuring of the Temple Mount. You read in Revelation about the measuring of the Temple Mount. These were his, actually his blueprints of how this could be rebuilt. Someone is going to come on the world scene that is going to understand that the temple can be built right next to the Muslim temple and a deal will be struck and it will usher in the seven years of tribulation at the end of all time. Okay, we're right there on the door. Someone's going to be reading their Bible and say, hey, we're told. Look at, let me read this to you again. I was given a measuring rod. This is John. I was given a rod to measure the temple grounds. And I was told, rise, measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. So he's measuring a temple that doesn't yet exist. Are you following me? This isn't there right now. She's measuring this temple, but I did not measure the court outside the temple And I was told to leave that out because it is given over to the nations. They will trample it for 42 months. He says, no, don't measure outside of the court because that part is given over to the Gentiles. Two temples will exist next to each other. And for three and a half years, people will worship in genuine peace, relative peace. Okay, this is how the Antichrist will come onto the scene. This is how he will gain a following for himself. Now, back in Thessalonians, let me read this to you. It says that this man, he will be revealed. His name is the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every other so-called God or object of worship. The pride, that spirit of Satan will occupy a man, will possess a man, and he's going to desire to be worshipped. He's going he's to just have such a hunger and a thirst to receive worship. This is the original sin that Satan had. This is why he fell from heaven. You can read about that in Isaiah chapter 14. This is how he appealed to Adam and to Eve and said, if you partake of the forbidden fruit, you can be like God and know the difference between good and evil. Right? It's the same pride, the same sin that has always existed there, right? And the same sin that you're being tempted with today. Proverbs chapter 16 says this, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. So this son of destruction is going to come onto the scene before the end or during the end. Now look at what happens next. It says there that he will take his seat. This is verse 4, the end of verse 4. He will take his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? So the Antichrist will convince the people to rebuild the temple. And halfway through that seven-year tribulation, he's going to walk into the temple. He's going to sit down on the throne of God or the mercy seat. And he's going to demand the world begin worshiping him. This is what will happen. The desolation. If you're taking notes, that's your next point there. The abomination of desolation. Jesus referred to this in Matthew chapter 24. So when you see the abominations of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, or the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. He will sit down, he will proclaim that he is God, and he will demand to be worshipped. Just like Daniel wrote in Daniel chapter 9, and Jesus wrote in Matthew chapter 24. So we have this confusion over the day of the Lord. We have conditions before the day of the Lord. The next thing I want you to look at is the constraining of evil. The constraining of evil, look at verse 6 with me. It says, and you know, 
what is restraining him now, what is restraining Antichrist now, so that he may be revealed in his time, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, and he who now restrains, uh, restrains it will do so until he is out of the way, and then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will consume with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception to the those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order to that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Thanks for tuning in for Love, Live, Lead, the broadcast ministry of Christ Community Church in Imperial Valley. Christ Community Church has campuses in El Centro, Calexico, and Brawley, with services in English and in Spanish. Your kids are going to love our kids' church. Plus, we have a lively youth ministry and young adults group. You're welcome to call the church office at 760-337-9400 with your questions. Or leave us a message on the Christ Community Church IV mobile app, the cccivy.org website, or direct message us on social media. We are really looking forward to meeting you. So again, the website is www.cccivy.org or call 760-337-9400 so we can plan your visit.